Hey everyone, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library Podcast. I'm Damon Taminawala, you know my co-host as always, Garrett McGilvery, and today we are joined by two very special guests from Center Court Development. We're joined by the CEO, Andrew Hoffman, and Vice President Bader Al-Khatib, and we're talking about everything that goes on in the development industry and what's happening at Center Court. Now, Center Court, for those who are not aware, is a high-rise community developer that focuses in the GTA. They were ranked as Canada's 11th fastest growing company, which is insanely hard to do as a construction uh, development company. They have built over 9,000 homes, created more than $6.5 billion in development value, and they are the smartest guys in the room. Um, you know, I, I actually relate them a lot when throughout this interview, I, I thought of them as um, if any of you guys follow Ray Dalio at Bridgewater and how he has a principled approach to his investments. Well, it seems the exact same way at uh, at Center Court. You guys are really going to be able to take a lot from this from these guys. These guys are leading uh, the development front in Toronto. And uh, yeah, enjoy. And before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to KMB Law, our sponsor. Check them out, kmblaw.com, kmblaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. Uh, you know me, Dema Tamanawala. You know my co-host, Garrett McGillivray. And today we are joined by Andrew Hoffman, CEO, and Bader Al-Khatib, uh, Vice President at Center Court. Gentlemen, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having, for having us. us. Okay, great. Let's, let's dive right into it. So, you know, Center Court, for those especially based in Toronto, we're very aware of Center Court, some of your development projects and the wild success that you guys have had over the last 10, 11 years. Um, but for those who don't know, and for our audience that are more uh, based on the West Coast, can you share a little bit about Center Court and, and how you guys got started? Sure. Uh, maybe I can take you back to the very beginning. Uh, so it was the summer of 2010. I had left Menkos Developments after 21 years, and I was looking for a name for the firm. And you know, one of my best sources for information and ideas is my 84 year old mother i called her up and she came back to me literally within a couple hours and she said she had the perfect name so even though i was skeptical the name she came forward with was center court she had been watching wimbledon uh, came up on the screen like a number of times through the the course of the wimbledon event center court at wimbledon and uh, i loved it right from the get-go firstly because of my passion for tennis secondly the connotation to the downtown and the epicenter of urban life. And thirdly, it was my mother's suggestion. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, Center Court was formed. The, the focus uh, was at that time and continues to this day to be uh, on high-rise residential development in the greater Toronto area. And really over the 10-year history, you know, we've become one of the largest developers in the market, you know, completing over 4,800 units. And uh, we have about another 4,000 units under construction or in our pipeline. Uh, but the thing I'm really even more proud about is and the success of the projects and the returns we've achieved is the nature of the business that we built and how we've you know tried to differentiate ourselves from other residential developers in the market. And you know you 
we've tried to combine that entrepreneurial approach that you see in in the family-run residential developers with the institutional approach that you see with uh, commercial developers, uh, with all the functional areas fully integrated from construction, sales, customer care. But then we've layered in a private equity incentive compensation structure, uh, which kind of pulls it all together where we have like an organization with highly motivated team of really smart and dedicated people that are passionate about development, but and they're fully aligned to uh, come up with, you know, great projects and great project outcomes. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I've, okay. We need to dive into some of the specific projects because you guys, I mean, there are so many successful, I mean, all of them, I think are successful at center court, but, uh, prior to doing that, could, do you mind taking us back to the beginning, you know, now we're talking about, I think I was on your website, 6,000 units in the pipeline, you said 4,000 units in the pipeline, 4,000 have already been developed uh, and the number grows every day. Um, but how did you get started? Like, what was the first development project that you did and how did that come together? Yeah, I mean, there was a site at the corner of Peter and Adelaide. Uh, it was an assembly site of uh, really two properties. Uh, I had institutional capital relationships with uh, some Boston-based uh, pension fund capital. And it really just started really with a team of myself and uh, hired on uh, Jonathan Levinoff, who con you know continues to be part of the core team to this day. Uh, and we just started off on that one project, really focused on uh, you know rolling up our sleeves and delivering you know great product in a efficient time frame and and achieving good project results and really the systems and the approach and kind of the, the various aspects that we've integrated into our business is really just layered onto that you know project after project but it started off with one project and kind of built up from there you know, i'd say a key aspect too has been kind of the relationships that you build up over a, a long career so uh, you know, the second and third projects really were brought to me by, uh, you know, another residential developer that uh, had too much on their plate and, and uh, I had a strong relationship with them and they came to me with a view to, you know, doing a 50-50 JV with us kind of taking the lead on, on the development side and, and uh, those were our second and third projects and, you know, things kind of just layered on from there. Interesting. Um so you talked about sort of the first site looking at things now you obviously are a significantly larger company a lot more resources that are under your belt what are some of the important things that you look at when you do choose a site because you obviously look at you know a great deal before you pick the particular one to build you know a massive tower on it what are those characteristics that you look for yeah that's a good question um you know I'm sure you've asked that to uh, a few other uh, folks on this uh, on this podcast, uh, um, and I'm sure you've heard different responses. Uh, you know, depending on who you're speaking to in the industry, uh, but really for us at Center Court, like uh, what we believe is a great development site, uh, tend to be you know pieces of dirt that are transit oriented. Uh, you know, five to seven hundred meters um, of a tra major transit station, uh, really proximate to to major employment hubs. Right uh, within established condominium communities, like we're you know we're not uh, you know we're certainly entrepreneurial, but we're not uh, so entrepreneurial that we're going to be the very first condo in a brand new area that's never absorbed condo product before. Um, and then most importantly, um, has the potential for high density. 
uh, in our world, you know, that definition uh, certainly, you know, uh, changes and evolves depending on the exact location, but minimum of 250,000 square feet is, is really kind of what we're looking for. So, um, you know, those are the five or six things that are always on, on the list. The one thing I'd say about our program um, is we don't shy away from a challenge at Centre Court. Uh, you know, we're truly open to opportunities that require some creative problem solving, uh, whether it's the heritage considerations, uh, you know, lease encumbrances, uh, challenging construction conditions. Uh, over the years, the teams really developed this expertise to really tackle those complicated projects. So really, the more hair on a deal, the better. Um, and if it has, uh, you know, the transit orientation, the density, that really gets us excited. Interesting. Um, sorry, Gary, go ahead. I was going to say, what are your thoughts on you know, you obviously develop a lot of condominium projects, but having sort of that mixed use product in terms of like, obviously there's certain developments that have, you know, two, three floors of retail office or some form of conjunction. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, my background, you know, prior to starting Center Court was actually more so on the commercial development side. So I'd say, you know, it's certainly a product category that we're comfortable with. I'd say, you know, our our business model right now is more of an inventory base that we're we're not looking to you know buy and hold on for the long run. We're looking for you know excess returns and you know given where cap rates are at today, you know our program would be if there is a retail component or commercial component to a development, we'd certainly you know underwrite that and integrate that into our development. But we'd likely have a an outlook of uh, monetizing that on project completion. Okay. Um, I I had a question about like, is there any secret sauce to structuring the perfect deal? I mean, it, you know, one of the things you always hear about Center Quarter, I've heard this, is that you guys are just an extremely profitable company, um, and you know how to make development sites work. Uh, but a lot of that starts on that initial acquisition, and uh, you know, Batter, you, you're mentioning. Uh, some of the characteristics that you look for. Is there anything involved specifically in structuring the deal with a landowner um, in order to have the best outcome? It's a it's a very good question. I'm uh, you know I haven't heard that uh, about Center Report. I, uh, I I often hear mostly about our execution um, okay. and uh, you know uh, our ability to unlock uh, really creative uh, you know opportunities. And I think that's what we take a lot of pride in. But um, look. I don't think there's a secret sauce, uh, Dema. I think really it's about um, knowing our business intimately uh, so to identify where the risks lie. And then it's a combination of um, keeping those as key priorities when you're negotiating a, a you know, land deal while listening to the landowner and understanding what their objectives are to actually get a deal done. It's, it's that combination, uh, I think, of um, you know, uh, patience and really understanding um, you know, what deal points are needle movers. Um, and, and certainly, I think we take a unique approach uh, to structuring deals. So, uh, my belief is, uh, you know, uh, there's no there's no cheap land or value out there. Everyone's very educated. Everyone's very sophisticated. So, it's all about how you can create value as a buyer. Um, you know, uh, call, call it either before the acquisition, during the acquisition, uh, or through the sales program and construction development. So, um, I really think our success is. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot to be done in the deal structuring, but it's really on the execution front uh, to really make it all work. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, 
and and you know, I, I want to just take it right to uh, Eight Wellesley, uh, and I don't think this was in the question sheet, guys, but I, I'm I'm sure you're happy to talk about it. One of the one of the most successful projects that we've seen recently. Uh, I, I certainly saw a few articles about it. Uh, wild success at, at your development project there. Are you able to share kind of what you saw and you know how it maybe differed or was aligned with with your predictions at the outset of that project? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, through the pandemic, it's, uh, we saw a lot of resiliency in the market. And, and uh, you know, in the summer of 2020, we launched you know, a project at 199 Church. And I'd say from the summer through to the fall, we saw you know, robust activity within our market, uh, a lot of sales and, and uh, demand that, you know, candidly surprised us. I'd say, like, in the latter part of 2020, things slowed down again. Uh, because of the lockdown and uh, so we were you know we were geared up and our focus was always on being prepared so in the case of eight wellesley we uh, we wanted to be fully prepared for a sales launch so we had the whole marketing machine geared up we had the marketing materials we had the you know we got uh, messiah jury as part of our our marketing launch and had all that in the can and it was just a question of you know pushing the button at the right time and ensuring that at the point we did uh, push the button that we'd have that uh, type of uh, buyer reaction that we were hoping for. And it was a judgment call, you know, do you, do you move into the market before others do, or do you wait for the certainty that the market is there? And we just made the judgment call that we had the right location, we had the right product, we had the right pricing. And if we had the market to ourselves, that uh, that would be a real advantage. And there was deep uh, pent up demand and, uh, that kind of proved itself out both in terms of the volume of sales. Uh, we sold through 600 units in a period of, of 10 days, and you know, the price point was uh, you know right in line with what we had hoped for. So, uh, it kind of all came together, and you know, it's not only good for us and good for you know uh, that that particular project, but it's, it's good for the market. It really instilled a lot of confidence in in other developers to come to the market, and that's a great th thing about our industry is that. Uh, you know, it's a deep enough industry that, you know, just because you do well doesn't mean uh, you don't want other people to do well. So, uh, you know, we're, we're really happy that we, you know, started 2021 on a positive foot and we're looking forward to seeing our competition do well. And we have uh, more projects that we'll be bringing to the market in, in 2021 as well. Wow. That, that's just staggering 600 units in around a week. I mean, uh like, can, can you share a little bit with, so we've, we've talked a tiny bit about what goes on in selection of a site. Now we're jumping forward to actually, you know, the sales aspect. Maybe we can dive back to the middle, but like what's involved in that, uh, you know, getting, having such a successful sales run. You mentioned Andrew pent up demand. Are there other, you know, obviously you guys are executing at a very high level, you know, are, are, are all of those condos being sold? domestically for instance or do you have kind of an overseas operation that you know some of those are going to what's what's kind of going on there in the background yeah we we uh do not i mean we have a limited amount of overseas like three to five percent it, it's all domestic buyers it's uh it's locally focused and uh you know there's just a deep uh demand for condominium product in our market but you know if you look at the the spread between single family homes to uh, condominium that spread is is greater than it's ever been uh, compared to historic periods. So uh, I think that 
that pent up demand is is there and you know uh, you know a fair bit of the market is investor based at this these early stages and and those investors you know do not want to be putting in their money in uh, you know the stock market or in the you know cryptocurrencies they want hard assets and they've got a comfort level in in owning uh, in owning housing interesting um, okay, good to know you guys are not putting your money in uh, in Bitcoin then. Okay, Damon. that answers my next question. All right, uh, you got to readjust your portfolio, Damon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dissuading you from it. <laughs> I'm not dissuading you. Um, so, so on that basis, obviously, you guys still see the strong strength in the real estate market for years to come, do you see any form of, you know, blip that might be coming uh, in the coming years, whether that be due to inflation or, you know, maybe over dependence on real estate, uh, like Canada as a country has, you know, real estate as a large percentage of its GDP. Do you see that as any form of concern? Look, you know, I think we take, uh, if you take a step back and just think about, you know, uh, Canada as a whole. I think we're very optimistic about our prospects, uh, for, certainly for 2021, uh, based on what we've seen uh, so far, and, and certainly for 2022. Um, like, there's been just a tremendous amount of government stimulus that's been put into the economy. So whether that's through, you know, tax measures like the payment deferrals and the, and the rate reductions, or um, you know, if you focus on the employment-related measures, so whether that's the you know, temporary wage subsidy, um, the you know, the Canada emergency wage subsidy, uh, yeah. The renewed immigration strategy, for instance. Um, so there's a there's a lot of um, you know really positive momentum, and I think that uh, momentum really coupled with uh, the fact that Canadians have curtailed their spending over the last 12 to 18 months as a result of the pandemic, and um, you know we're we're hearing uh, you know as much as 100 billion dollars of cash uh, sitting in you know, savings accounts or on the sidelines. Uh, you know, as for that Benjamin Tall report that I think we've all uh, probably seen at this point. Um, you know, like I think those two things really make us uh, uh, comfortable with the prospects. Uh, you know, certainly of, of Canada, and then uh, Toronto is only gonna, like I believe, and I think we believe, is only gonna benefit uh, to a greater uh, extent. Um, so, you know, that seven percent GDP figure that uh, I think uh, Bentall, uh, you know, references on on a few occasions, uh, for us that really feels like a uh, you know an achievable number. Uh, Again, based off of all those measures, and and you know, I can't emphasize enough just the borders reopening. Like 1.2 million immigrants over the next uh, few years, and and I think for the real estate folks in the world, we all know the, the immigrants coming into the country are are you know folks who typically have employment light up, who are are earning a very good wage. Um, they need rental housing, so I think the rental market's going to see um, you know so, some tremendous uh, demand, and then eventually those people convert into homeowners, uh, which feed into the condo projects that we built. So. Uh, you know, all in all, um, very optimistic, and uh, we certainly see that GDP forecast. And uh, you know, uh, we don't have any concerns uh, about that, and and certainly not um, with, with with our Toronto lens on. Gotcha. Yeah, and I, I'd only add, I, I totally agree with Batter, what Batter just said. Uh, the only thing I would add is we don't actually don't run our business based on you know short-term forecasts. It's a mugs game to try and forecast on the short term or even the medium term. I'd say like, you know, if, if we had done that, you know, we were in a pretty negative outlook on how 2020 would play out. So our, our business model is really one of, you know, we're huge believers in Toronto over the medium long term. 
Uh, we know that the condominium market will be a robust market over that period of time. And so if we buy great sites, you know, we design them the right way, uh, we position them for, for launch, it'll just be a question of time when, when we bring them to the market and, and execute on our development program. And, and uh, that, that's really the keys to, to good execution rather than trying to make predictions about the shorter term. Gotcha. I guess that. Go ahead, Damon. Oh, I, I was gonna say, like, just in relation to execution, because, you know, I, I asked somebody about uh, you guys in advance of this call, and you know, one thing they mentioned was, well, CenterCorp is just known to be on it, is how they described it. They, they said that you guys are hyper diligent, super responsive, and, uh, you know, that was that was one encapsulating term on it and and you know can you talk about some of the mistakes that maybe other developers might make going through the process of entitlement or you know going going through the the works of a, of a development process that other people maybe yeah, know for yeah i mean i i'll i'll put it in a more positive way of how it it works within our organization and, yeah. and why i think that uh, we're able to execute so so well and it, it's really in our dna to be proactive and methodical in our development approach and and uh, you know it, it starts with a business plan and a blueprint for how we execute and you know the various aspects of the development program if you think of the steps it's you know you go through your zoning and entitlement phase uh, you know what can you actually build and what can you get your approvals for and you move to you know design development you know designing the buildings from the inside out you see a lot of developers get caught up where they want to have like a star architect and it's sometimes driven by ego like our focus we we're very proud of our buildings but we're pragmatic too so you know we first look at you know what can you physically build on the site what's the floor plate what are the unit mixes that people actually want to live in you know what are what are the size of the units and the livability of those units and the amenity programs that uh, the people want and then we lock on that floor plate and the, the mix of units and then, you know, it's amazing what architects can do, even though like the standard floor plate might be that floor plate that goes, you know, from the bottom of the building all the way to the top, uh, but they can create that articulation of exterior through just materiality and other means. They don't need to, you know, come up with these, you know, curved elements and uh, other atypical floors that complicate your construction, complicate your sales program and other things. So. Uh, design development and sales and marketing. You know, we have an incredible guy, uh, Jason Lamb, who's got deep relationships with the brokerage community. And, you know, we come up with what we think is great, effective marketing campaigns. Uh, and then the internal construction team, again, that alignment of the construction team and how they're focused on execution. And then the in-house customer care. It really comes down at the end of the day to the people and, you know, having, you know, smart, well-aligned specialist in those areas, one business leader that kind of oversees and orchestrates all the different functional areas and uh, just having them drive towards, you know, results. And I guess our, you know, our main measurement for success, you know, we're proud of the architecture, we're proud of the nature of the projects, but we're driven by, you know, IRR and project execution. And I'd say that might be a differentiator as well that, that uh, you know, some developers maybe just look at, you know, aggregate dollars, it doesn't matter whether it takes them five years or, or 15 years. We're, we're driven by, you know, execution in a, in a time frame that's where the, the returns and the risk and the, 
uh, overall return profile is taken into account. Uh, and if, if I can add one thing there, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I think if you talk to anybody on our team, is just our principles. Like, uh, Dima, you mentioned uh, everyone's kind of just on it. Like, it's, it's and Andrew said it's part of our, our DNA. Um, it really just comes down to our corporate principles. Like, you know, respond to people in a timely fashion, um, right? Be transparent in your communication. Uh, make sure you've done the homework before you've re replied or have a response. Like, make sure you know what you're talking about. Um, and, and do that all, again, like transparently, quickly, and be honest when you don't know something. And I think if you do that consistently and enough, um, people recognize it, especially when they've had different experiences, um, right? So I, I think it's, it's it's everything Andrew said, and I think it's just making sure that, you know, when you walk in in the morning, you, you know what the expectations are of you vis-a-vis uh, -vis our principles. Okay. I mean, that... That that makes sense to me. It it sounds like you guys just have a shop full of rock stars, and that's kind of made its way into the culture, um, which is amazing. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what sort of IRRs do you typically see? Um, you know, you know, you don't have to share that. You can keep that private, but I'm wondering. Yeah, well, no, you know what? Again, in our spirit of transparency, like we, you know, we'll underwrite when we buy a site. You know, we'll underwrite to. Uh, you know, 15 net IRR to on capital, which you know I'd say is as razor thin as you'd want to underwrite to. And then, you know, fortunately through execution and and perhaps market conditions, you know, we try and be, you know, honest to ourselves how much flowed from you know market improvements and how much flowed from execution. And I think there's been that equal combination. But you know, we've been you know of our nine completed projects were well north of. 20% as high as 80% IRRs on, on our project. 80%. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how you become the, what was it, the 11th fastest growing company. Yeah. Um, right? So, um, I, I, a couple quick quick questions. Actually, one quick question before, uh, Garrett, you dive in. You, you mentioned uh, for eight Wellesley, Masai Ujiri being on board and I forget which other developer was working with Pharrell on a on a project. Pharrell Williams, yeah. Uh, like, how what, how much does that play into the marketing? Do you, do you think that we're going to start to see a lot more of that? I would love to see an OBO development, for instance. <laughs> um, it's a you know it's a good question because we um, look. Uh, we debated internally whether or not it was <laughs> it was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, Maybe I'll say two things. Uh, like, do we think it actually moved the needle vis-a-vis -vis our, you know, total revenues? Uh, you know, obviously it's debatable. Uh, we don't think it necessarily moved the needle that much. I think it was really to tell people, um, you know, the story of Toronto. And I think it, the market really needed it because of all the negative publicity and headlines you've been hearing about the downtown. So I think having someone like Masai who... Uh, and if you listen to the actual interview, it, we didn't talk real estate, right? It was all about what makes a city so great and the downtown um, an awesome place to live, which I think we all uh, truly believe. Um, it was really a reminder. And, um, you know, but certainly I think having voices like his uh, and others uh, who have a real connection to the city, uh, who, you know, believe in the city, uh, you know, reminding people why it's so great, uh, you know, when uh, we're all working kind of in our basements, potentially outside the core, um, it, it's a good reminder. Um, and I think it was uh, really well received. Um, you know, uh, I really don't view it as a marketing tactic as much as a, uh, you know, 
uh, almost an, as an educational reminder uh, to our buyers and and, and hopefully to uh, you know folks in the business who are who are you know potentially having doubts. Right. Interesting. It also it also goes along with your name Center Court, which obviously is a tennis reference, but um, <laughs> you know yes. not everybody knows that. So yeah, in basketball. Um, on the topic of affordable housing. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, legislative things that the government has been experimenting with and trying to do. You know, Vancouver implemented the vacancy tax because they have a, a little bit more of a problem with foreign buyers putting money into the market. Um, what are your thoughts on things that perhaps the government could do or something that could happen to, you know, help them achieve that goal of, of making things a bit more affordable? It's a good it's a good question, Garrett. Um, look, I mean, we know locally there's been a lot of talk uh, about affordable housing for some time, and, and more recently, um, you know, uh, about inclusionary zoning uh, in particular. Um, and you know, I think that our expectation and the industry's expectation is uh, some type of legislation will be forthcoming in the next 12 months. It's uh, you know, call it a near reality. Um, you know, what the particulars of that legislation will be. Uh, are you know uh, perhaps to be determined or will be determined in the next little while, um, and you know our opinion is uh, really like inclusionary zoning or some of these uh, tools that uh, people are talking about is really only going to make the development and construction of new homes uh, candidly far more difficult. Um, you know, uh, people don't really. I mean, if you run the numbers which we have, if you, it's, it's going to take a lot. Uh, for the market to absorb such a shock, uh, it's going to be—it's going to really result into a material reduction uh, in land prices, um, uh, or, or alternatively, a material increase in the selling points of, uh, of new condo units. Right. So it's either going to make—it's uh, either going to dwindle supply because you know uh, folks like ourselves can't actually go out there and buy land because uh, the values are now impaired and we either need the market to catch up, or the end buyers are going to be subsidizing those affordable units um, in some way, shape, or form, only making it more expensive for them to actually break into the market. Um, so, you know, and, and all in all, the result of uh, either one of those things happening is, is just less housing. Um, and I think we all know how hard it is uh, to, uh, you know, uh, produce housing um, in the GTA uh, at this time, whether it's because of the extended, um, you know, uh, rezoning process, the lack of land, like the disconnect between uh, buyers' uh, ability to pay and sellers' price, or the fact that it takes us, you know, several years to actually build a building. Um, like, it, our our opinion is in the short to medium term, um, really, it's going to result into less affordable housing for I think for a whole lot of people who uh, who need it. And yeah, I would. The only thing I the only thing I'd add is I, I agree that it it the equation is pretty simple. If if you impose that type of tax effectively, it's it's one of two things. It'll either, or one of three things. It'll either come out of land price, it'll be paid for by the buyer, or it'll be coming out of the margin of the developer. And there's not enough margin to to be able to absorb a 10% to 20% affordable housing. The unfortunate part is when they talk about inclusionary zoning, and there's definitely a need for more affordable housing, uh, but the way to get more affordable housing is bringing down the input costs and or bringing down the risk profile of bringing on development. So, you know, one of the thoughts that originally when they talked about inclusionary zoning is is creating more certainty on what density was allowed on a particular site, in which case, you know, developers would be prepared to pay, you know, 
more for the land, you know, inclusive of that affordable housing component, knowing that they can bring on stream the development in their shorter time frame with, with less risk. Unfortunately, that doesn't appear to be the direction they're taking. And I think the conclusion is that the development community can probably absorb it. And unfortunately, uh, something's got to give. So not a good outlook for the near, near <laughs> midterm. <laughs> Yeah, it would be it would be great. We were expecting you guys to say, "Well, we have a new solution," um, and and problem solved right there. Um, why don't Why don't we shift the talk topic and 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 talk about something that's uh, that's exciting? You guys have a lot in the works right now. What What projects are you really excited about right now that people could be paying attention to? You know, I I, I had to talk about prime condos, uh, so. Uh, you know, we we mentioned eight Wellesley, um, and and obviously we're that's been sold, and uh, you know we're we're moving on to prep for construction. But Prime is a call it one of my babies. Uh, it's a project that's near and dear to my heart, and uh, it's now fully zoned, and uh, we feel good about the market after the launch of eight Wellesley, and we're, and we're hoping to capitalize on that success and and uh, kind of bring this 45-story tower, 595-unit building. Uh, Right, the doorstep of Ryerson uh, to the marketplace in the next month or so, um, and and you know I think you guys asked about our uh, conviction and sentiment. Um, I think that says enough right there. The fact that we're willing to launch two projects back to back in in 2021 uh, uh, just tells you how enthusiastic we are. Um, and and this building in particular is uh, you know one that we've been working on for many years, and it's in a, it's a part of the city that's really hard to to develop. There's you know there hasn't been uh, you know Call it substantial action on Jarvis Street uh, for some time, um, and and you know uh, I think just another you know call it our sixth building in that area, right? So we're a big believer in the East End, um, and um, again we're just excited to uh, really showcase uh, and build off the success of you know, great condos, uh, one nine nine Church from uh, uh, call it last summer, and and really bring. Uh, some more housing supply to that note because it's uh, on the doorstep of a transit and the doorstep of a, uni of a university. Uh, it has all the characteristics that we look for in a development site. Um, and I think it's going to be well received by the marketplace, especially at the pricing that we're going to be uh, talking about very soon. Yeah, that's uh, that's very exciting. I, I'm a big believer in the downtown East too. And and for those listening along at home, you can go to center court slash CRE library and get 10% off a condo. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so this is, it's always harder when you guys are already investing directly in Toronto, but, uh, you know, okay, say, say somebody has a couple million bucks because we have, you know, a lot of, you know, smaller investors who listen along and, and have careers in commercial real estate. Where is your ideal place to put it? You got a couple million bucks, you can put it anywhere in Canada, any asset class. What are you thinking about? Uh, so this, we're now we're giving investment advice to on a diversified portfolio, and I guess we're already established you know, not not to go into cryptocurrency. I mean, I you know obviously I'm bullish on on high rise condos, and uh, you know uh, there are various ways that you know capital can deploy in it. You can actually just go out and buy a condo. Now some would say that's kind of a retail deployment. Uh, you can also do it in a more wholesale way because there's some you know, deployers of capital that invest in condo projects. So, you know, that would be another uh, opportunity. And I guess that's, that's more, 
you know, higher return in, in uh, theory, higher risk. And then if you're a believer in real estate, you can also go in a more mainstream fashion of buying, you know, more uh, income producing assets, whether it's commercial, industrial, office, and probably the simplest way is simply buying the REITs when they're, you know, at a discount to NAV. Uh, albeit if, you know, they're at a premium to NAV, that would be the time to, you know, perhaps uh, buy through some of these syndicated operators or buy yourself directly in, in real estate. So that's kind of the real estate kind of landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether you want to go into other potential you know, sectors of deployment of capital, but uh, right. And don't, don't and, right. And, and, and what about you, Batter? Look, uh, I'm a big believer uh, in real estate. The, the very first thing I did after uh, paying off my OSAP loans was to buy single family rental. Uh, you know, I was 21 years old. That's the first thing I bought. I didn't buy a car. I didn't buy a Rolex. I, uh, I bought a single family home in London, Ontario. Like, and, uh, you know, that's, how I got my start in, in the business, you know, back in 20, whatever, 12 it was. Um, and, and today, uh, you know, uh, older, wiser, and uh, very experienced on the property management side of the business. <laughs> um, what I would say is, I think Toronto, uh, like when I think about Canada wide, I think Toronto's the place to be. Like mm-hmm. it's the economic engine of the country. Um, I think, uh, you know, Andrew spoke about the different ways you can deploy money. Obviously I'm a big believer in the condo business. Um, it's like, it's a, it's proven, uh, it's a proven asset class. Like you can see, like everything we talk about in our, um, candidly, our presentations to buyers, like look at the, the price of a condo relative to a single family home in the GTA. Right. And look back at 2017 and see, you know, what the trend lines tell you. Um, like, unfortunately, you know, not everyone can have a single family home. Uh, most of us uh, will live in condos and it's a fantastic uh, living option, uh, especially if it's transit oriented and, and in the downtown. So if you can find a way to, uh, you know, invest uh, in that asset class, whether again, it's through direct ownership or through uh, a REIT or through um, a, a syndicated fund. Um, I think having that exposure uh, to you know, the economic engine of the country and in a up and up market is, uh, you know, that's where I have all, uh, all my eggs. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's always funny asking that question to uh, to guys like you guys because it's and like that's investment you, advice. That's just the way I invest. Just so I know. Uh, you know I mean, <laughs> disclaimer. Um, okay, and now uh, one last question, and this is uh, this is a challenging one. Also, another one that's not on the sheet, as most of these questions haven't been. But uh, you know, if, if you could if you could give some advice to uh, your younger self, maybe yourself ten years ago, and you guys have been you know, very fortunate, but, um, you know, what, what would you tell yourself then? Uh, a lot of, a lot of our audience, again, are kind of, you know, midway, you know, at that changing point in their careers. Um, so very interested to, to hear what you'd tell yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what my father told me when I left law after six months and, you know, he came from the old school that if you weren't a doctor or a lawyer, then you know, you didn't have a career. So he, he thought I was crazy when I left law after after six or twelve months. I, I'd say you know follow your passion. Uh, sometimes easier said than done, but uh, build relationships. Like invest in your time into people that you truly care about, and and uh, there's nothing more important than the relationships, whether it's on the personal side or on the business side, and. Uh, 
I'd say that's something that I certainly pride myself in. And, you know, going back in time, I would have probably invested even more time in that. But, you know, over the course of a career, uh, you know, having those relationships with whether it's uh, you know, on a personal front or, you know, in business with, you know, banks, trades, partners, brokers, uh, you know, planning department, you know, having those uh, key relationships is key. And uh, I'd say that would probably be the, the biggest thing. And then just following when opportunities arise, you know, sometimes it's just being lucky and being in the right place at the right time. I remember having a debate with someone about, you know, how much of their success do they attribute to luck versus, you know, hard work and, uh, they attributed it all to hard work. And I, I'd say, you know, there's an element of luck, involved, yeah. you know, be, being it, being in the right place at the right time. But when that, that right place, right time does materialize, jump at it and, and, you know, take advantage of that opportunity because those opportunities don't come along very often. Right. Yeah. Well yeah. It's a, you know, I'm not going to say 10 years ago, cause that might be, uh, uh, a bit long for me, but um, you know what I. I think the biggest lesson that I've that I would share with people is be patient. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, uh, I know everyone's a hard worker. Everyone's a rock star. Everyone wants um, you know success uh, instantly and, and gratification instantly. Um, be patient, right? Like it's work hard. You know, keep your head down. Um, you know, your hard your results will will garner attention. Um, you know, and I, I think that's the biggest lesson. And the other one is, you know, bet on yourself, right? Like, I think that's a big one, um, for sure. Like, you know, um, you, and it not, again, not everybody has, uh, maybe the confidence and you have to build up to that level, but once you have a skill set, bet on yourself and, and don't focus on what you're good at, focus on what you're not good at and, and how can you get better at those things? Um, right. Like it, if I'm great at something, that's, that's great, but I want to kind of fix my flaws or, or close those gaps. So th those are really the three gaps, maybe the three things I would share, you know, uh, be patient, um, bet on yourself and really focus on, you know, your areas for improvement. Um, if, if you can do those three things and, and uh, do them well, uh, I'm, you'll find success, however you define it. Great. So, so good stuff, guys. I, we really, uh, really appreciate be being here with you guys and you guys joining us. It sounds like, you know, Center Court is not even 10 years old yet. I know you guys have storied careers uh, and, and a long history in the space, but for a company that's not even 10 years old yet, it's, it's very exciting to see uh, how far you guys have come and, and where things are going to go. So, um, you know, thanks so much for your insights today, and uh, we hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks so much for having us. Thank appreciate you, guys. It. Really appreciate it. Great chatting.